Hello. So welcome to our panel discussion with Easton Law, Jillian Chu, Geoman George, and Jonathan Tran. So our earlier sessions today focused on lived theology in trans-Pacific context. We've heard presentations on how particular Asian and Asian American Christian communities think and talk about race, justice, and politics, and how they embody and act on their beliefs about God, humanity, and their place in the world. So these distinctive accounts suggest how things like context, social context, community practices, migration history, and trans-Pacific connections between Asia and Asian America shape Asian American identity, complicate the black-white racial binary in the US, and challenge and enrich local notions of justice. These accounts also show how Christian faith motivates Asian and Asian American civic engagement and political action. So what we'll do for this hour is give this morning's presenters a chance to interact and engage with one another. And then in the second half of uh, our hour, I invite audience uh, members to please continue submitting and upvoting your questions under the Q&A tab. So right now I'd like to open the floor to Easton, Jillian, Gioman, and Jonathan to say, you know, what's on your mind now after hearing each other's presentations? How would you respond to one another? So I could start with a question for um, Dr. Law. Um, I was wondering, like, you, you did, like, put a plug saying that you would, like, um, be able to share your favorite ethnography references with us. And I'd be interested in that for sure. And I was wondering also, like, how you think about, um, like, Asian Americans in this will, this will be a little complicated, but in the di diaspora. So, like, like say you, like you're Asian American, but you ain't in America or Asia. Like, how would you think about something like that? Uh, thanks for that question, Julian. First, for those that are curious about how to bring together, not just, not, not just on ethnography, but bringing together ethnography and traditional modes of thinking and theology and ethics and, and these kinds of things, I highly recommend um, a recent text by Todd Whitmore. Um, Todd Whitmore is a Christian ethicist at the University of Notre Dame who not unlike Jonathan Tran, I believe, wasn't trained in ethnography at all, but then took a deep dive into that method. And he did a book uh, called Imitating Christ in Magui, uh, which is a, a region in Northern Uganda, um, Imitating Christ in Magui, published by TNT Clark Press. And this book is amazing to me because he does the hard work of, uh, of real ethnography multiple years in the region, but he also weaves theological reflection, history, issues of class, race, economy, colonialism. He weaves this all together in a creative and really powerful text. So that's the one I'm, I'm constantly um, kind of pushing is, is that text by Todd Whitmore. And regarding what it means to be Asian American and not in Asia or America, it's been hard to do this the past year with everything going on in Hong Kong and China that I care about, but as well as watching things in the United States. And I'm in Switzerland, which is, pretty nice. So it's been, there's been a lot of survivor's guilt. But I guess the point I'll make here is why I think the trans-Pacific angle on Asian American theology is so important is even though these places are so geographically far away from me, I, I was often glued to my screen in, the, in that mediated way of what was happening. Uh, it was still affecting me almost as if I was there. And yet I didn't have a community around to, to, to work it out with. And so 
that the closeness of these things is so much closer than before, even if I'm hundreds of miles away from it. So um, those are just some simple reflections there. I would also recommend. I can perhaps uh, add a little bit. Go ahead, well, go I was ahead. just going to say, I would also recommend a, a volume called Ethnography as Christian Theology and Ethics. Um, uh, it's got a number of voices, including Dr. Whitmore, um, as well as um, Luke Brotherton's a number of essays on ethnography and Christianity. Um, um, uh, Adam, what's his name in the UK also has a really good essay. But I, I think the best reading on ethnography is to read ethnographies. Um, and I would highly commend uh, the, the two that were mentioned earlier this morning. I was just actually just gonna echo um, Dr. Wells' um, comment on um, being far away and actually really concerned. And because in um, June 2019, I was still in St. Andrews, and um, because in 2014 when the Umbrella Movement happened, I was in Hong Kong and um, seeing things that are happening um, around me might be surreal, but I could kind of like um, put it in context, but being very far away and watching the news unfold, cause they're not gonna film like just a street with like nothing going on. They're only gonna film like the most intense parts. And so it's it's very like, it made me really distressed just watching the news. And once I was actually in Hong Kong in July, it was fine. Cause like, I know things are still happening, but like, um. And, but the thing is, I can kind of see everybody else still living out their lives. And it's much less stressful um, than being far away and watching things happening. Yeah, one of the best uh, practices that I have found is the use of sensors in, the, in ethnography. Now, it is not simply listening, but it is also walking, walking the street, listening, tasting. So it is, it is embodied practice. At the City Seminary of New York, we have a practice called the Pray and Break Bread, where we uh, we go to all the boroughs of New York City. New York City has five boroughs. And we literally go there and just walk the street and listen to you know what God is doing. So just walk in the street, just imagining, you know, just seeing what are the different stores that are there. Who, who is walking there? Who are not? Who is not walking? What is visible? What is invisible? So uh, I, th I believe we have a, a PBB or prayer break bread uh, in in July. You know where I invite all of you to join if you can. This is a simple good practice of how we can use our senses to really understand and discern the community. You also mentioned, um, Dr. George, in your presentation um, about um, being present in like Facebook and different social media. And I was wondering, like, how do you see like digital ethnography? It is very important. Uh, Pre-COVID, I would not have thought about digital ethnography. But right now, in, in the Zoom world, air meet world, right, uh, it is important because before the, I'm a pastor, they would come to the sanctuary, but now through Zoom, I am invited to their home. I'm actually a guest in their living room or where they maybe. So what does that mean? Where are they sitting? And what is the technology, uh, the internet challenges? And again, uh, John talked about privileges, right? 
uh, it's also the access and equity that we need to talk about as well uh, in ethnography and in terms of understanding, you know, uh, race, justice, and politics. My scheduled um, participant observation was supposed to begin uh, March 15th of 2020. You'll notice the coincidence of the date for at least on the American side, that's when the pandemic shut everything down. So uh, my observations, which were like 15 hours a week, you know, 50 interviews, et cetera, et cetera, were almost entirely online. Uh, but like Dr. George mentioned, it allowed me to be in spaces that even if I was physically there would have been difficult. Um, now, again, this speaks to the hospitality of Redeemer Community Church, as well as a number of people in the Mississippi South. Um, but, you know, I, I think ethnographers and, and anthropology and sociology and uh, folks who use that method, this will forever change the way they ask the question of what, what constitutes ethnography. And, and that's a good thing. I think that's a good conversation within those guilds. I, uh, I just want to echo that even in my own methodology, I, I wanted to be in uh, China and Hong Kong for a longer period of time, but family obligations and, and, and things changed that. So half of my interviews were done digitally and the second half were over the course of three, three months in, in, in on site. And it was interesting to be able to compare the way that worked. Um, some of the relationships I built up over, over the internet and how that played out live. And uh, I guess this cycles back to that issue that I even brought up earlier, or Jillian brought up earlier about um, the world is so much closer now and yet different. It's just because it's closer doesn't mean it's the same or better or worse, but it's different. And even ethnography has to be, you know, worked out differently. How we use the senses digitally has to be worked out differently. And um, and, and this is a new new chapter in, in, in the method and, and what the church can be doing with it as well. So Geomont Easton, Jillian, Jonathan, um, from your presentations, you really emphasize the importance of looking at the real lives of Asian and Asian American Christians, and instead of just making very vague, essentializing claims and reasoning from there. And you also emphasize the importance of bringing together trans-Pacific stories. Can you help us understand concretely, you know, what happens when we don't do this? You know, when we, when we don't look at the real lives of Asian, Asian American Christians, uh, when we don't um, keep in view these trans-Pacific connections, what are some examples of where we've gone wrong in our conversation? I just um, published a paper with political theology where I offer a um, kind of sustained critique of what I call whiteness discourse. Um, whiteness is kind of one of the primary ways through which American anti-racism stages um, it's kind of discursive fight with racism. Uh, and I basically say, you know, why I've been saying throughout the conference that this this discourse is half right, half wrong. Um, it's wrong where it assumes that what whiteness is is some kind of trans-historical power that determines history without answering to it, that white identity um, is ongoing, eternal even, and essential. When reality, white identity is constantly being negotiated that's partly why it's so violent, exactly because it isn't essential and eternal. Um, but if we don't recognize that, then we can stage the fight of anti-racism against a permanent reality that will only um, you know, paralyze us, basically. What I say is that ethnography can help us see this, right? So think about the book I mentioned yesterday with um, um, Heather McGee. What she did is she actually went and lived among white people and saw how they negotiate their white identities. 
I think that's what I was trying to do with Chinese, the Chinese in Mississippi, as well as the um, Asian American community in San Francisco. How did these folks actually negotiate their identity? Uh, Mary McClinic Fulkerson wrote an ethnography a few years ago where she described a, 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 um, a religious community in, in uh, Durham, North Carolina, that what she said, they needed more critical race theory and they needed to talk more about race. Uh, and so I took that theory and assumed that must be the, the case with right the San Francisco church. And what I found was the more they talked about race, the more confusing things got. The abstract theory really didn't help them, right? And so uh, that's what I mean when you write ethnography, you're accountable in a different way. That's why I love it. I mean, it's it's uh, Christians would just use the language of incarnation. Uh, it's answerable because it lives in the world. Now, I'll build on what uh, Jonathan has shared in the sense, and, and this comes from uh, my study in Buddhism, really. I think the, the greatest challenge when, or pitfall when you do any type of work, anti-racism work, you know, without ethnographic or without the stories that undergird it is you reify things. You reify concepts and you think that certain people or certain actions or certain movements are permanently these things and then you attack and you work you build your entire construct on how to engage it based on a very reified and, and reified just means very permanent like structured stable thing when in reality it's they're constantly all the people that are party to a concept are in fact negotiating it constantly every day it is moving it is changing it's fluid and as much as a concept can be helpful the stories show you that it's just not that simple and I think that's why so many people resonated with Jillian's presentation. It's because it's easy to talk about democracy, communism, China, Hong Kong, in these reified forms. But the minute you get into the stories, they mish and mash in ways that just are much harder to um, handle, but are real. Ironically, they're more real than a reified concept, if you will. Um, and so that's why it's 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 so important to to get the stories. Yeah. And just to build on that as well, you are really missing God at work. And also you are missing theology. There's a lot of theology going on in the living rooms, at work, between subway stops. So if you're not paying attention, you can really miss out on the creative work and seeing how translation of the gospel is taking place. You know, uh, for example, you know, during uh, uh, COVID-19, the March, last year, beginning of the March, at City Seminary, we started an initiative called Sustained by the Spirit. You can uh, read some of those stories if you go to cityseminaryny.org, where we just want to see how churches are responding to COVID-19. As Jonathan uh, uh, was saying, you know, there's a lot of negativity, right? There's a lot of things, uh, fear, anxiety, but we're also looking for the good, good things, uh, you know, uh, the, the way the spirit is working. And we were wonderfully surprised. We shouldn't be surprised because God is in, in control, but way in which the creativity and, uh, and the initiatives that the leadership and the lay people are doing. And, and we would have completely missed it if you had not done that hard work of uh, looking and searching and knocking to see what our church is doing, you know? Uh, and uh, I know all of us are doing that at City Seminary. Uh, our initiative is called Sustained by the Spirit. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, following up with Dr. what Dr. George said, I feel like at the entryway of every ethnography should be written the words for those with eyes to see and ears to hear. 
Um, uh, speaking of which, one of the things I felt so, I mean, I just felt all three y'all's panelists, uh, your presentation super powerful. One of the things I was so compelled by Jillian's was when she, she gave the composite voice to the kind of pro-China voice, the beauty of her presentation was for a while, I thought it was Jillian saying those things, <laughs> um, which shows how much she had the courage to inhabit a different way of looking at the world. I started thinking to myself, wow, does Jillian think, actually think these kind of scary thoughts? Um, the, the ability to, and the courage to allow yourself to inhabit another way of imagining the world, even one you may find offensive, um, is this extraordinary work of ethnography. It's both to recognize the problems and deficiencies of a mode of thinking, but also to go with Dr. what Dr. Joy is saying, is to see things that are good and surprising that we might learn from. Um, that's, I just, I was just so like, this is super powerful. Does Jillian actually believe these things? <laughs> so. I, 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 was, I was reminded of um, something that, um, I'm not sure if this was something that we talked in private or it, it was part of your presentation, um, but um, I remember how uh, Dr. Law was saying how uh, this being, um, embodying the voice and working with community and because how uh, how we're we're usually working um, individually, but actually working in community is also super important. Um, and um, theologians tend to work um, on their own, but um, being grounded in a Christian community um, where it taps into the voices. And so, uh, and this was actually um, I practiced this with two of my dear colleagues and friends. Um, um, these two different narratives before I presented us here. And so, um, and we were doing this on Clubhouse without real, because none of us are really good at Clubhouse and without realizing it, it was like a public room and somebody just stormed in listening to me saying this stuff. And I was like, do they really think I think that? And so, and, and that, that was, that was an interesting. And, and I think working but bringing to a different point, I think working in community as theologians is so important, not only within Christian church communities, but also with other theologians, other scholars, other academics, because um, we're able to um, create so much more powerful narratives just by doing this together rather than like shielding on our own and just coming up with things that we think might be right. And so I think not only bringing in the voices of the um, average person, but also um, collectively in an academic community. Yeah, thank you so much. It's such a rich conversation. And I see we have tons of really great questions in the Q&A. So I want to make sure we have time to at least address several of them. And the first question is from Kyle Chen of Princeton Theological Seminary, and he addresses Dr. Tran. Uh, Dr. Tran mentioned the Southern Baptist Church's rejection of critical race theory. I've noticed many conservative Christians dismissing anti-racism efforts and CRT wholesale as Marxist and unbiblical. How can we respond for the sake of church unity around anti-racism? Yeah, I'd love to hear uh, my colleagues answer this too, um, maybe to save me because it's such a hard question. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> 
I mean, I, I borrow a lot from kind of Marxist anti-ideological thought. That's pretty much all I get from Marxism because I think it's importantly wrong on a lot of things. Um, but I, I also am, David Chow constantly helps me remember this, but you know, I don't need to go to churches and talk about Marxism. It doesn't help. It, it may make me sound smart, but it's also going to alienate half the community. I need to take and re-articulate within Christian terms what I think is continuous, uh, but also name what I think is critically different, right? So, um, but you know, that's also to say, I don't want to kowtow, and I think this is the spirit of the first half of the question, is we don't need to kowtow to people who don't aren't operating in good faith. Um, that is, uh, right, the, I, I take the, the point of the Southern Baptists is they're not operating in good faith. They're not really saying, I've actually looked at critical race theory, I'm actually a committed anti-racist, and therefore I, you know, what they're saying is I don't want to have to be bothered by thinking anything different than I, ha I have, and maybe at some subconscious level recognizing the privileges of their life that they can make issue, they can issue statements like that. I think that's just nonsense, and I think we should call it out as often as we need to. Um, so. I think you I think you handled that wonderfully. I just I agree. So. <laughs> well, Mike Kareem also asked a question um, and this is also for Professor Tram, but anyone can really respond to this too. Uh, can you give us an example of methods or processes where to quote you empirical facts when pressed become theological? Um, it, I'm doing uh, my next project is on a lot of stuff in the science of philosophy. I mean, philosophy of science, um, specifically evolutionary biology. Uh, they, of course, don't talk about God very much, <laughs> just like what I'm doing empirical studies of, say, systems, uh, economic systems in San Francisco. It's not going to mention God's name. But I think insofar as world, God inhabits the, you know, makes possible the material connections of the world, then if you push far enough um, and it takes some some ability to theologically imagine. Um, you'll see this. But I also said, if you push far enough, you'll see it. But it's also, I said, if you give it enough time, I think in eternity, God will show us how all things connect. Um, because God will say, uh, what, you know, when those cells work that way, <laughs> when mitosis works this way, uh, that's me. <laughs> I engineered that. Um, I did that. So um, we, it's just hard to know for sure now. But I, that's why I said anything that's a fact, qua fact, um, will eventually yield to to theological facts. They'll say something about God. That's what I mean by uh, this world is God's. And I'd actually like to to answer the question as well because I, I mean I very much resonated with that that statement, um, Jonathan. And it has a lot to do with the fact I think that when you do ethnography with a theological sensibility, you're dealing with this wave upon wave of empirical um, sense based you know story research and stories. And for me, I didn't share this thoroughly because it wasn't the presentation wasn't about my dissertation but for me I didn't start out looking to do a dissertation about you know trans-pacific boundaries and spiritual formation I was pretty much saying I'm just gonna do China and Christians in China and then suddenly I was surprised by the way that a uh, number of my informants had spent time in the States and how that shaped them Hong Kong etc cetera, etc cetera. but the, the this fact that I kept sort of following like breadcrumbs right uh, ultimately led it to this understanding of like, when that, watching these mainland Chinese Christians negotiate their faith differently when they entered into different places, cultures, the theological truth that came out of that for me was that God wants boundary crossing for the formation of the soul and the spirit. 
like it's it you know that that then this was the sort of the theological insight that it gave that that it opened and for me it was the theolo the, theologizing piece that you know like crossing boundaries is not an option in the christian life if you want to grow as a christian um it's something that must be done uh it's it's part of sanctification and that for me was the theological truth that sort of emerged out of the facts uh that uh of my research for me anyway yeah thank you and Giovanni, Jillian, do you want to chime in too, just in your own um, ethnographic work or work with communities? Um, you know, where have you connected that to your theological understandings? As a researcher, you know, uh, it is the sense of discovery, right? So you are open-minded and you know, to be surprised. Uh, so uh, and and uh, and to be and the wonder of it, you know, uh, it, it's a wonderful, uh, a wonderful thing to have, in my opinion, you know. Uh, so I often go to see how am I being surprised in this situation, uh, and also in this, I want to say the next generations are leading the way, you know, and we need to have them uh, uh, part of that this dialogue and this conversation. Uh, so uh, uh, looking at the gatekeepers, right? Who are they? And this uh, Zoom has introduced uh, a different layers of gatekeepers. Who are the gatekeepers in our communities pre-COVID are no longer the gatekeepers doing Zoom because of the technical challenges and all those things. And it's interesting to see when you go back to post-COVID, right? The shift and the changes that's gonna happen for, uh, and what does that mean uh, for the church? And how is the church uh, reimagining itself uh, during this time? So this is an exciting time as a, as, as a researcher, as an ethnographer, as a pastor, as a theologian, you know, um, to see what God is really doing and then opening uh, opening opening yourself to see what what god is really doing and uh, and just record it and share the story uh, so that not not be afraid to share our story uh because uh, at least in the indian american context the story has been told by the other uh so indian american uh, uh in the united states over 50 years now so they have become grown into adulthood. So what does that mean, right? There's an old African proverb, until and unless the lion gets to tell its story, the story will always be told by the perspective of the hunter. So the Indian American story has always predominantly been told from the perspective of the other. We have been defined, for example, model community, right? Uh, so right now, uh, through ethnographic research uh, and theology that is emerging, we have an opportunity to write our own theology and, and write our own story and share it and own it and own our story. And, and, and what does that mean to be really part of God's story? Yeah, I echo um, the um, sentiments of Dr. George. Um, I, I, I'm reminded of um, Professor Pete Ward um, in, from Durham University. Um, he, he mentioned uh, how when a theologian does uh, qualitative research, it seems like there is an expectation of interdisciplinarity. And there seems to be an expectation that one has to trump another, or at least there's some sort of uncomfortable like um, bedfellow going up. But like, um, why is that not the case with other social sciences? Like say, for example, education. Like why, why is education doing qualitative research without thinking, oh, I'm doing this as a 
a interdisciplinary project. And so, um, and what um, Dr. George just talked about uh, being in COVID and being Zoom, using Zoom, and that changes the dynamic. I'm, I'm reminded of how um, in the field, uh, when classes moved from in person to online, the interactions in the chat box was amazing. But as you know, um, or you might not, but um, in Hong Kong context, um, students won't really, aren't that vocal. Like they aren't gonna all like shout out their um, questions and comments. And if you ask them, do you have a question? You need to just, like stand there for like a good few minutes before somebody like reluctantly asks a question. And so, and the same thing with a church. So like when church services are moved online, um, when it's on YouTube, you can see people posting comments, but we not, we're not an African-American church. We're a Chinese church. So people in regular, in the pulpit won't go like, um, when, when somebody says something in the pulpit, like people not, people are not gonna go like, amen, brother. It's like, that's, that's never gonna happen. Like, and so, and so watching those kind of dynamics um, happen in, in the digital platform, I can see how the digital platform shapes our interactions and the lack thereof actually. Say, um, because in China, um, you're not supposed to um, evangelize outside of the physical church building. So what happens in COVID? Like when people can't get out of their actual um, where they live and so they can't they can't go oh let's do it on zoom because that's illegal and so what would that interaction look like then with the lack of that and so i i think it's it's when we're talking about how um being with our community and um being theologizing in community it's not something that we're doing that's different or exotic but it's so necessary because we need to observe it because this is actually happening whether or not we're paying attention to it. And so um, having this conversation is super important. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, there's a question from Kubom Lee and he says, I meet many Asian American Christians who are disillusioned and exhausted regarding race, justice and politics in established churches. Is there a need to think about new congregations and missional movements organized around these kingdom concerns? This is a tricky one. Um, my tentative answer will be yes, uh, Dr. Lee, that um, the church is, if you look at the history of the church, um, even from a, a social analysis perspective, the church is constantly renewing itself uh, through new movements within it. And that involves in some ways leaving old movements, even if you're not you know, breaking off like Protestants or schism all the time, but you know, monastic movements within the Catholic church. Um, and if we're just talking about the Asian American church, I do think that this is a time to reconsider what the Asian American church is. Uh, this builds on uh, Jonathan Tran's call at the end of his um, presentation. Um, congregations are important, but maybe we need some new types of Asian American congregations. Uh, and, and organizing will 
I think a good is a good step to imagining what that might be. That's not to say older congregations are no longer part of the story, but churches renew themselves by changing. And um, yeah, that's my immediate reflection on that. As I shared earlier, as a researcher, I am excited to uh, see what is the what are the ways in which churches are reimagining uh, in, uh, in the post-COVID, and uh, uh, rather than asking what it ought to be, I want to listen and I want to see. You know, uh, I think there's already a lot of creativity is going on. There's a lot of, I'm sure there's a lot of, uh, a lot of those churches maybe already happening. As an ethnographer, our job is to go and see, you know, uh, and visit different churches, uh, you know, and uh, observe and listen, pay attention to what, what is already going on. Uh, and it is an exciting time uh, to see the new ways in which churches are, ecclesiology is changing, uh, you know, um, as I said, gatekeepers may be changing, you know, uh, new leaderships may be evolving. So this is really an exciting time uh, uh, in the life of the church. I, I just wanted to say a couple of things about exhaustion, um, right? There's different kinds of exhaustion. There's the exhaustion of our brothers and sisters in the trenches, um, and they're exhausted by George Floyd's killer is uh, convicted, and in the very same moment, another kid is killed. Uh, that's exhausting, right? And this is not just what happened last week. This is centuries of exhaustion. Um, there's exhaustion about the way the current conversation is going. I feel exhausted by being in ecclesial and theological spaces where I'm scared to death of making a mistake, of saying the wrong thing. I'm a human being sit situated in extraordinarily complex realities. Of course, I'm going to make a mistake. We all are going to make mistakes. If we format the conversation in one in which we can't make mistakes, where we can't learn to laugh with one another, where we can't say, you know, that was a terrible thing to say. You're still part of us. We forgive you. If we don't have those basic tools of humanity uh, that Christ gave us, that got Christ intensified, how are we possibly going to carry this off, right? And so I'm, I, I'm, I'm, you know, so there's the exhaustion of the good work, and there's the exhaustion of bad conversations. Um, now I get why those conversations have gotten bad because of, you know, we need to protect ourselves from certain realities, but we need one that's aerated, open, hospitable, the willingness to kind of extend grace to one another. Uh, how do we do that while also claiming for truthfulness and honesty and holding each other accountable? I want to say that that's what Christianity is. When I became a Christian at age, you know, 20 or whatever, uh, the primary claim was, you know, I was in, I was in India realizing there's no way I'm going to be able to carry off this stuff Jesus says about the poor, given the, the reality um, of the streets of Calcutta. And the word for me was uh, the, the passage from Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, which is something like, Jonathan, I know you're going to blow it constantly. I'm still going to take you in. Um, I, I think we need spaces like that. Um, at least I know I do. I, I don't know. I mean, y'all are better human beings than I do, I'm, than I am, but I think we need spaces like that. Yeah, thank you. Grace Tan from Brandeis University asks, uh, in terms of next steps, what would partnership and alliance look like between predominantly white, black, and Asian churches? Even so-called diverse churches are not necessarily sensitive to racial issues, but may be open to working together. Um, 
just to get us started, uh, my guy Greg Lee and my guy um, Ray Chang recently hosted a conference with the Christian Collaborative uh, with the, with historic Black churches in in Chicago, um, um, and uh, it began with reckoning with their relationships with one another. Um, uh, Professor George, what you said earlier about the marginalization of South Asian communities within Asian American anti-racism, you're, you're too gracious of a human being to say it explicitly, but I felt convicted um, that the way I tell the story of Asian American isn't, doesn't easily resolve to equally try to tell the story of South, um, South Asian folks. Um, so, you know, begin with confession, uh, at least that's what Christ, it's, it's okay to begin with confession. That's, that's how we get in the door. Yeah, next two questions are kind of related and they have to do with limitations of, ethnic, of ethnographic work. Um, Christopher uh, V asks, um, you know, there could be some dangers of unhealthy obsession with methodology, you know, might methods devolve to become totems for conjuring accuracy, uh, reifying even a community for pretexts and Kevin Volrath of PTS also says, I am all for the use of ethnography and might you speak to the limits of its usefulness, whether for Asian American liberation or for theological questions. This is a really important question. I just wanna emphasize that uh, and then pause to dwell on it some more, but it's, it's a really In the work of theology, right? You'll have many conversation partners and ethnography is one of those conversation partners. I think that the, the danger in ethnography or the limitations of ethnography is that it's primarily a, a method that's directed toward description, very, very thick description. But if you're gonna prescribe something, which I think is often the nature of theology, um, then, you've got a really narrow line to walk um, that, 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 that can be very, very difficult. Um, and I think for me, the limitations of the method are when you have to start making those ethical um, pronouncements around what you are seeing. Um, and this is where more traditional modes of theology, traditional modes of theology are important. Church history, systematic theology. You know, I'm not gonna say those things are not important. Um, I think those have just lost their grounding. Um, but there'll come a point where after we've gathered all the thick descriptions we can about the world that we're living in, that we're gonna have to sort of um, pivot back into a more systematic way of thinking through these things. And, and, and I would note that, um, you know, Jonathan Tran, given your training, just the way you talk about ethnography and are able to work through it on a philosophical level, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about, quite honestly, that, that you know, that systematic philosophical work with the ethnographic data and the method. Um, and, and there's some, some trickiness to this. A Christian tradition has had its, uh, in, modern, in the modern era, it's back and forth about this too. Uh, I, I see something in the chat about narrative theology and, and in contextual theology, the struggle between the descriptive and the prescriptive. I think that's the big, big thing that I struggle with when I think. I think 
once um, we think of ethnography as something to that can be generalized, that is very dangerous. Um, it's it's not meant to be that. Um, it's meant to um, resonate. And so when we think of um, writing and ethnography, we're not saying how this is applicable everywhere else, but we're wanting those who read it to be able to resonate with the stories that's being told and how that would um, bounce with their theology and their context and um, revoke more questions than actually being prescriptive as Dr. Lal said. Yeah, this is very helpful and it reminds me of what many of you said earlier um, about how this is such a dialogical process between you and the informants and it really also encourages accountability and self-reflexivity, understanding you know, our own normative values and what has shaped us and our thinking and being able to interrogate that and be critical about that uh, in conversation with those we are talking to. And, and I think that's just very important uh, parts of, of this discipline, of this work. So thank you so much for, for speaking to that. Um, I have a question here. Uh, whoops, it's still, okay, from <laughs> Xiaobing Li, who asks, uh, I found it difficult for first generation uh, to feel for the second generation's lived experience as Asian Americans. Some first generation Christians dwell on love over justice. How can we fill the intergenerational gap? And I know Dr. George has alluded to some of that in his presentation, so I don't know if you want to take a shot at it. Among the first generation of Indian Americans, they did not consider themselves as Asian Americans or Indian Americans. They didn't have that category. You know, for them, this was the promised land and it was a gift. It was a host country and they will not criticize and uh, they, they want the American dream. So, uh, so, so because of that, their the, the longing was that they settle down, uh, pass on the faith uh, at the American to the next generation, and then possibly they'll go back to India and retire. But what happened was that their children got older, they got married, and they had children. So then uh, the responsibility of uh, grandchildren, you know, say, Grandpa, please stay. <laughs> so that, that that changed the way in which uh, the first generation. Uh, begin to re-examine their understanding because initially they wanted to go back to India, but now because of grandchildren uh, and knowing that going back to India is totally different uh, than when they left, many of them are, are choosing to stay in the United States. You know, so they're beginning to see that they are slowly moving from the first uh, seeing themselves as simply as a sojourner, and now saying, "What does it mean for me to be?" in the United States where I spend most of my time. And this intergenerational conversation is so crucial, uh, especially in the Indian American uh, context. My household, there are three generations, my parents, myself, my wife, and my children. And uh, it's amazing to see some of the conversations that are taking place, uh, whether it be when you're driving, right? What my parents will not say to me, they open up to my children, right? They are, they are more 
uh, op- they, they're, they're more generous in terms of sharing the stories because they do want to pass on those stories in a uh, uh, to the grandchildren. So this intergeneration, whether in the church context or in the family context or the community context is cr- so crucial. And that's one of the uniqueness and uh, the contribution uh, that Asian Americans can make to the, uh, the larger uh, communities in the United States. Yeah, thank you. I see a very interesting question um, from Shujie Lu of Regent College. And the question is, I'd love to hear more uh, just from the different panelists selected, uh, how, how you selected a different, the specific communities that you've studied. What did it look like to go from an initial interest in that community to properly deciding to focus your study on that community? So I think that's a really interesting question because when we're talking about, oh, I want to learn something about Asian Americans, like how do you go about selecting um, a community to study? And uh, yeah, what goes into that process? For me, as said, uh, theologian, I wanted to reflect from my community, not for my community, but within my community, which is, which then means that I need to listen to my community, walk with my folks. Uh, so I also realized very quickly that not much uh, writings or stories has been shared about Indian American Christians, especially the Pentecostals. Uh, there's hardly any uh, writings on the Indian uh, American Pentecostals in the United States, and, and uh, you know, so I started from my own context and and learning to share my story, and then it was a uh, there in that search of and then finding where, what are the stories that I have not yet heard. So it is the the, the inquiry, the curiosity, you know, of uh, wanting to learn more about myself, more about my community. Uh, and what God is doing here uh, in this community, and what is also want uh, to share with others as well. So it started with my own location. When I first began um, thinking about working with the Redeemer Church, um, I I said, you know, in asking their permission for me to enter into their um, space, including quite protected space. I said, I'm not going to be writing a, ha- a hagiography, <laughs> like, you know, presenting you as perfect people. Uh, this speaks to their character. And they said, thanks, because uh, that's that's the only reason we want to invite you. Because um, if, if, we, if, we pre- if you present us as perfect, as soon as someone walks in our door after having read your book, they're going to be disappointed. <laughs> so, um, so it did mean, and this goes back to several things Easton has said. Uh, it's not, for me, it wasn't simply describing what I saw. It was also making normative claims about what I saw. And this meant some points where I make critical assessments of their life, right? So I make quite critical statements, and this is a grace of that church, they allowed me to do this. I make quite critical statements of the discontinuity between their thinking a lot about race and thinking not nearly as much about issues of environment. Why do I find that disappointing? Because I think those are analogous realities. They're both, they're analogous realities. They're both about modes of domination and exploitation. It's surprising to me how how seldomly anti-racists get that and how seldomly an environmentalists get that. 
So in right, telling their story, I, you know, as I think you, everyone knows, I say a lot of things I just think are glowing about them, but I also wanted to tell the full story. This is what I meant by the humanity of the project. But it's also the humanity of the ethnographer because you then have to present the story back to them in fear and trembling. Um, and you realize you, you feel like you're betraying something. Um, and again, out of their grace, they say, you know, we don't fully agree with this picture or we do fully agree, but it's it's your book uh, and we believe in your work. So uh, it was sim similar kinds of things with the Mississippi Chinese. And these folks have felt like they've been burned, right? The, the, I had mentioned yesterday that one standard interpretation of the Mississippi Chinese was that they became white. This is James Lowen's classic book, The Mississippi Chinese, published by Harvard in 1971. And there was a generation of Chinese Americans in Mississippi who felt burned by that interpretation. That's how they became known. Well, I, I felt like I was going to rescue them from that interpretation, but I was also going to put them under another searing interpretation in terms of um, racial capitalism. These are hard decisions you have to make as an ethnographer. You, I didn't feel like I could only uh, re-articulate what they wanted to say about themselves. I also had to put it within an orbit frame. I was just on a panel last week with a bunch of um, historians at the Organization of American Historians. And, you know, low, surprise, this is always the con conversation historians have, that they're committed within normal normative projects, just like, you know, Jane Hong, Dr. Jane Hong said, context, context, context. One of those contexts is the context of the historian. What is she after? What is she committed to? What does she believe in? Uh, and those are negotiations that are fraught and difficult, but necessary. That's, I think Dr. George put it best. That's the wonder of our work. That's the best part of academia, to be surprised, not only by what we find in others, but what we find in ourselves. And I'll build on uh, what's been shared. Uh, my my interest in, in working with Chinese Christians in, in the Shanghai region uh, was dependent on a lot of personal experience. I spent four years um, in China uh, teaching and doing some work with, with house churches. And during that time, I built relationships that just brought a lot of questions to mind, right? And then once I started my PhD, they were like, well, I have an opportunity to system, systematically investigate it, right? Um, but, I, but beyond an opportunity to, to go deeper with relationships I previously had, um, something that dawned on me while preparing for this conference uh, again, sort of, I'm struggling and working out this autoethnographic turn in, in my own perspective, is how much I was fascinated by the prospect of seeing Chinese Christian experience among middle-class educated people like me, around a similar age as me, as a sort of alternate universe to what my Christian life could have been. I am a third generation, third, fourth, I'm a fourth generation Chinese Christian. My great Grandmother was an evangelist in the city of Wuhan and in Hubei. And what if thousands of contingencies I was in China today and still who I was? I'd still be a Christian. My spiritual life would be so different than it is now as a Chinese American Christian. And, and there was a deep fascination with looking, again, echoing Jonathan Tran, looking at what could have been similar and what was so different you know, as a Chinese American studying Chinese Christians and just the trust and the vulnerability. I think ethnography as a spiritual practice, if you will, is really quite humbling and, and holy. I mean, you're tr they're trusting you, you're trusting them. You're, you're being vulnerable in ways that don't typically happen in your average institutional relationship. 
um, and, 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 and ethnography as a method really uh, challenges both the community and the ethnographer to do that. And I think this is a recent turn because if you look at early ethnographies, of course, the early ethnographies couldn't, didn't care you know, at all about how they were representing the community. They just thought they had it and, and, and did some real bad colonial damage through those ethnographies. Um, but the way that it works today, there's just this ho holy process, I think, that you go through. And so when I hear uh, you know, Dr. Jordan, Dr. Tran, Dr. Chu talk about their work and the trust that has to be built, um, it's, it's a gift and it's a challenge. I started this project um, thinking that I am a Hong Kong Christian. And so what would make me a faithful Hong Kong Christian? Um, how do I be faithful to my identity as a Hong Konger? How do I be faithful to my identity as a Christian? And so um, with that very simple idea in mind, I came into um, doing and ethnography and the way I approached um, the communities is um, through personal connection. So as an insider researcher, um, I connected with my gatekeepers and my gatekeepers um, were able to point me to people who were interested in sharing. And so um, I, I can see um, limitations in that for sure, because obviously, um, um, this is not just a critique on myself, but also just um, interviews generally is a very middle class um, educated sort of practice. And the voices of the middle class educated comes out pretty prominently because um, those who value um, conducting interviews and um, those who value um, um, research are usually um, those who have the luxury of time and the money to do that. And so um, and so I can see how people I have engaged with from these communities are for sure um, with similar um, backgrounds as I would be because um, they would value um, somebody who's doing a research and they would think their voice is important and needs to be, there's something that needs to be said about it and um, they want to articulate. And so I, I can see the limitation of that. At the same time, this is not supposed to be an exercise that is um, to ge be generalizable about all Christians in Hong Kong. That's not what I'm trying to do. Um, I'm trying to represent a specific voice in Hong Kong. And so um, hopefully I've been able to do that. And I'm trying to, through these voices that I've been hearing that um, to ground where I am and what does it mean to be a Hong Kong Christian and how does the two identities um, interact with each other. I just want to sl slip in. There's another um, theological ethnographer working in Hong Kong. Her name is Kalita Chu. Uh, I also want to lift up her work. Um, and I feel like I would remiss not to say this. And I don't. I hope I'm not making any essentializing claims. But I've noticed that the pioneers oftentimes in ethnographical thinking in its history and in the current turn in theology are women. Um, and we cannot underestimate the power of that. Um, I feel like we, we just need to get out of the way. Um, and, and look, people, I'm not saying this to get the floating emoji. So I, I just, that's something I observe, observed. So I'm trying to avoid the emoji. I'm not looking at the emojis right now. I'm just, that's just something I observed.
Yeah, thank you so much. And um, I just have one final question for the panelists here, uh, because we talked a lot about the importance of particular stories um, of not generalizing or prescribing, but then we talked about the tension about how um, theology sometimes, you know, it is meant to be interventionalist, right? We're trying to disrupt something. We're trying to say, hey, this is how we can be more faithful. This is how we can be more aligned with what uh, we think God might be doing in this world. Here's where we might need to repent. Here's where we might need to change direction. So how do you negotiate that tension, you know, between wanting to say, you know, honor the specific particular aspects of your work and understanding its limitations, but then also understanding its potential and its power to uh, resonate with others and to speak into other situations. Maybe that's too huge of a question to answer in one minute, but <laughs> we can carry this over to the next panel too. Well, very quickly, I want to affirm the spirit of what Jonathan just said and, and lift up what Jillian said earlier about resonance. Because um, when she said it instantly, I was like, that is what it, I'm struggling with. And she just answered it to some extent, right? Um, because I, and, and this ties to what Reverend Sungyeon was talking about yesterday as well, this offering of a story that has such resonance that uh, there's a humility to it, but you just know there's some truth in there that we're going to keep struggling with and trying to live into. So it's not prescriptive in this robust sort of philosophical oughtness, you know, um, but it is a story that's offered humbly that's saying, I think this is what's going on. I think God is doing this. And if it resonates, then clearly we need to keep going with this. And, you know, um, and, and in some ways, I think that's how the spirit moves. So thank you, Julian, for even uh, taking that, my, my, my struggle in that direction. It really uh, was helpful for me. Yeah, thank you. Well, on, th on that note, um, let's move on. We, ha we have a, only a half an hour lunch break, you know, check out the lounges and exhibits, you know, quickly use the bathroom and then we'll be back um, for another panel at one. Okay, thank you so much panelists. This was very illuminating and helpful.